Extras for Podcast is brought to you by the fine folks at Cage Club. So for all of your comics, movies, music, games, and more, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Explodey boy or not explodey boy? I guess that's kind of the question. However, there is so much to discuss before we can even approach what is the most touching conversation between a boy and his zombie self. That, of course, makes this This Is X. I'm Nico. I'm Kyle. I'm Maddie. And I'm Jonah, and we hope you survive this experience, unlike zombie explodey boy who's dead but he did do a heroic sacrifice on the creature that may or may not have been influenced by metroid and but before we could even get to that i and the staff why did the staff have to go anyway so as has been the case this whole summer we have been celebrating the diverse wealth of fandom across the x universe and one of the most exciting things has been bringing in other people with knowledge and experience that is different than our own and we're bringing in a guy who has his own brand where he manages and collates together issue guides on classic series as well as delivers some incredible youtube reviews i want to welcome josh to the show hey everybody welcome josh hey. hi josh hey how's it going uh, we're doing great. It's a Sunday morning, so for those of you who have not caught it ever before, we tend to record Sunday mornings. Kind of makes it like drag brunch, but for comic books. And what would drag brunch be without a little hot goss? And the hot goss today is going to be about X-ships. And I don't mean the Blackbird and the Crimson Pirate Boat. However, if you want to do a whole episode about Kurt's Crimson Pirate Boat, I'm there. No, no. Today, we're going to be talking about relationships in the X-Men before we hit over on X-Men Empire. And so that brings me to our guest, Josh. I want to know, favorite X-ship and least favorite? So I've become definitely big Scott Emma over, you know, the last few years and kind of going back and rereading stuff stuff but probably all time because you know the ones from when i was younger are so much stronger and chamber husk like jono and Paige, and like her type a with his moody emo boy and i just like i go back and i reread those and i'm just like oh you stupid boy oh like i love that one so much And one of the things I love about it is she's like a militant girls generation and he's like a MyChem fan. And that homogenization has such real to it. It has such weighted reality. They really did seem like a dynamic real couple. And ah, I love those picks because I'm also a big Emma Scott stan. So who's your least favorite major X ship? No hate, just not your favorite. I don't, the one that probably gets me upset the most are gene ships like i think any of them like when scott grabbed her and kissed her at the end of rose and canny i was just like livid like like no what and and not that like i hate them together so much but just i don't know like i love gene and red i love gene as just like the strong solo woman type and you know 
what they do to her when they force her with Logan or Scott or anything else, it just it just feels like it messes up other good dynamics going on in the books. Okay, you know, I mean, you you touched on some. I mean, like, I think I think Gene and Logan are forever, but I can I can forgive that weird take on reality. No, I mean, I totally get what you're saying. I think too often that a strong woman is easier to write for a male perspective when she is defined by the man she is with. Anytime Gene is in a relationship with Logan, not only does it give Gene the relationship with Logan, but it gives Logan access to Gene as a reactionary figure. And in many ways, by putting Gene with a male who, unbelievable that there are males that can eclipse Gene in terms of popularity or success, but you put Gene with a male like Wolverine, who is a ubiquitous character throughout comicdom, and she becomes the plus one. She becomes mm-hmm. the accessory. They've never really put Jean with a man that is, for lack of a better term, below her station, like a Phantom X, which they could have run with in the pages of New X-Men. Like a bishop. Oh my god. Well, I mean, <laughs> I I have a I have a bishop ship that nobody gets. I really like Bishop with Psylocke. And that's just me. I have a favorite X ship, and that's, of course, Gene Logan. And if I have, like, a secret second favorite, it's a ship that doesn't exist. And I really love the idea of Captain Britain and Pete Wisdom and Megan in sort of this healthy poly thing. Uh, Scott Logan Gene as a poly thing when, you know, my family is a poly family is a really special thing for me. Uh, If I had to pick a relationship that I think maybe I just don't get. I'm going to go with Alex Poe. I never want to see Havoc and Lorna together ever again. I think they've both outgrown that station in the X-Men, and it is time to see Lorna not defined by the man trying to own her at that point, whether it's Xavier, Alex, Bobby, who, you know, now is too gay to own her, which good for you, bruh. Um, Magneto, we're past that stage. I never want to see them together. But, you know, Jonah, you actually are the Joe Man's guy. You're the one who takes care of that side of things for us over here. Who are your favorite and least favorite ex-ship? Okay, my favorite ex-ship. Uh, so here's the thing. In everything that I've read, there have only been probably the main ones. I haven't seen any weird ones, and I don't think I have any that are completely out there that haven't been seen. I have to echo what Josh said a little bit, and that I love Emma and scott together mostly because i love that they psychically cheated on gene and scott was like it doesn't count it was all in my head and then there's that scene where emma puts on the dark phoenix costume (laughs) and it's just it's perfection and it's everything i could have ever asked for my least favorite ships short-lived couldn't even tell you the run i just remember toad and husk being all linked up together and i thought that that must be the ugliest lovemaking of all time I mean, I don't think anyone's really looking for some uh, toad erotica, you know, these days, but... And and frankly, I'm not looking for any husk erotica. Something about the tearing of flesh is a little too close to, like, I don't know, vor for me. And I, I just, like, any of that, like, consumption, ugh, no, not, not for me. If I had to pick a favorite right now, it would definitely be to echo what it seems like everybody's saying, or at least Nico was saying, is the Logan Scott Gene possibly Emma triangle? Yeah, rhombus? I like rhombus, parallelogram, like, like, fuckalelogram, because I need Emma in there. I, I think Krakoa is just, like, a sexual game of tangrams at this point. It's like, who can you put together in what way and what shape does it make? How can I forget Mystique and Destiny? Because I literally love my evil moms together. 
Like, that's... I, I don't know. There's something about them that they've just been together for so long and finally being able to, you know, say that they're in a relationship and married and being able to be visible with their queerness, I think, is really special and amazing and in a relationship that I would really enjoy, even though they are evil and they kind of just do things for themselves. But, like, who doesn't want two lovable evil moms? I mean, I mean, here's what I'm trying to say. You can imagine this beautiful family where Holland Roden and Sarah Paulson are the mom to Anna Paquin. And you would reject this out of hand? Oh my god. Straight out of pocket. But uh, I just looked, I was just curious and looking up, you know, what are the worst ships, what are the worst relationships? One that I saw that I don't think I would ever enjoy. Mystique no, no, and Iceman? No, 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 I'm gonna defend the shit out of this. I'm gonna come in and defend the shit out of it. So, Mike Carey's X-Men is about deconstructing the notion of good guy and bad guy. And Mystique had just done several arcs in a row where she disguised herself as a new mutant and infiltrated an organization to bring them down. Whether it was in the pages of Joe Casey's Uncanny with X Corporation, or it was in the pages of Pete Milligan's hyper-satire, X-Men in the form of Fox. This was Mike Carey exploiting the misuse of women throughout the pages of X-Men. By saying, look how malleable Mystique is, not to mention, by this point, Bobby still wasn't gay yet, but had been with two different characters that had in some way or another been non-binary or that sort of comic fake trans that isn't really the trans experience that, you know, time has changed over the course of. But I do specifically think that that coupling, not great. But it, it stands to make a statement about the narrative that Mystique was like, look, I'm actually Mystique this time. I have nothing to hide. And Bobby is so drawn to these larger than life characters. Bobby needs a gene to be like, no, that's my friend Gene. She's so powerful. Bobby is a fucking Omega level mutant on his own. But at that point in the narrative, he was still searching, aching for a belonging, an identity. And Mystique seeing a powerful mutant she could take advantage of, who was equally searching for a mommy dommy. I feel like that is such a great exploitation of all of the things that X-Men wasn't getting right at that point. And outside of context, it's garbage. But in that context, where Mike Carey was making a definitive statement on the nature of X-Men, good and bad, through the course of his initial arc before he began Pandemic, I'm a big fan. Not many people are into Angel and Husk, which I just have to say, I just feel bad for Husk. Two out of the three relationships we've talked about with her have been bad. From what I gather, it was a soapy nightmare where it was emotionally just overblown and so middle school that people were like what the heck also you took a you took a title from shakespeare how cliche right now does anybody know the current state of page the last i remember she was not in a great place mentally in the pages of wolverine and the x-men have we seen her much since the most kind of that we saw of her was in the um crucible issue where you know She's just checking in on her sister before she goes to fight Apocalypse. Otherwise, it was just like two seconds in Fallen Angel, two seconds in uh, Hox Pox before, you know, she was the first casualty on the mission. It's really interesting that I feel Husk then represents this kind of Wolfsbane-esque position as someone who they use as a sacrificial lamb in a lot of situations because she stirs emotions. I've said multiple times uh, that I am a huge shipper of Kate and Rachel. So yeah, that's that's Rachel for my favorite 
As for my least favorite, I am going with Rogue. No, why? But I love them. It's so weird. I'm sorry. I just... No. Everybody's allowed taste, and I never judge anybody for their taste, but I actually really love that pairing. I just think it's really cool. I think she's a little too close in age to his daughter, per my but comfort. But that's the nature of Magneto. But they're both Magneto consenting adults. always dating some yeah. pretty young thing. Like, they never, no one's ever like, oh, look, this 72-year-old stateswoman. She's a great choice for Magneto. They're always like, there was like hot young babe in a bra. Well, Nico, we were chatting the other day, and you know, I said, I don't think anyone needs a resurrection more than Magneto. Just so that way we can finally be like, okay, look, now he's this age and nothing else is problematic anymore. Like, all the other questions and randomness and time shenanigans can... Look, he's 52 now, and that's it. Or he's whatever. Because that's kind of the nature of having that sliding scale of age. You know, we want Magneto attached to the Holocaust, but we're going to reach a point where it's well past where that makes logical sense. And thanks to the Krakoan Resolution Protocol, ding ding, thanks to the Krakoan Resurrection Protocols, we can really skirt that. Yep. What a time to be alive. And I do like that you brought up a Magneto ship, especially Magneto Rogue. I feel like both of them are uniquely defined in different ways. Magneto can't shake his villainous past, and that makes sense. He had an extensive villainous past, but Rogue's villainous past lasted a grand total of like six issues. So I find that a really fascinating pair. I kind of do wonder how Claremont and Lee came to put them together. I like it, but I guess on paper, there really is nothing that clicks there. Are, are we all in agreement on who Magneto's real soulmate is? Xavier. Yeah, okay. Just check. Charles. So to move the topic along today, we are talking about, at some point, Empire X-Men number four with writer Jonathan Hickman, pencilers Jorge Molina and Lucas Wernick, inkers Adrian Benedetto and Lucas Warnick, color artist Nolan Woodard and Rachel Rosenberg, letterer VCs Clayton Cowles with design by Tom Muller and cover art by Kyle Hotz and Dan Brown. And is it just me, or does everybody else believe unequivocally that Jonathan Hickman must be a Say Anything fan? Oh, absolutely. So here's the thing. I understand that at no point do they clearly say that this is the same character as from Max Bemis's really good miniseries, Worst X-Man Ever. I wonder if this is one of those situations where they need to be very careful about acknowledging something so that they're not stepping on anyone's toes. Perhaps it's like the verbal agreement Frank Miller had with Ralph Macchio in the 80s, where Elektra was to be run by him first, and this is a convenient way to get there. Or maybe it's one of those complicated rights ownership things where... Bemis actually does own the character, and to use it would have made it prohibitive, but by having him be a sort of, not to to sound shitty, but generic exploding mutant. As a matter of fact, Josh, I think we even discussed that people thought it might have been a different exploding mutant as well. Yeah, I I wasn't sure. Like, my first guess was Bailey, but then I was kind of second-guessing myself because he's a Genosian zombie, and... I cannot mentally keep track of all the mutants that, you know, were going to and from Genosha over the 80s and 90s. So I just figured it was one that I, you know, popped up in a random issue somewhere that I was forgetting about. You know, I have to double down on the argument that it is, in fact, Explodey Boy, because there's a couple of two two knowing references to Max Bemis in here. One being that Explodey Boy's first kiss was with the Arachnidor 
which Max Bemis has an affinity for spiders. There's a Say Anything song called Spider Song, and not only that, but when Forgiving Durden, uh, or Forgive Durden, rather released Rosie's Shadow, the musical, in 2008, Max Bemis was cast as the spider deity in the album itself. So I, I am going to double down and say that this was a, this was a dangerous use of an intellectual well, property and, that is not wholly marvelous. Well, and I do even want to jump out there, because in looking at the credits on the front page, the zombie is credited as Explody Boy. So they're clearly trying to make a character here. They really want someone to jump to life. And we're going to keep talking about Explody Boy kind of nonstop as we talk about this issue. But I think it's high time we give Jonah what he is looking for. So Ileana was fucking nuts. I love her. Oh my god, she went crazy. And like, we don't even, not even in a derogatory way. She just went like drunk on power, but like full-on demon power and she was calling everybody her slave and then she went over to kurt and kurt, she was like you dashing blue demon you i have a special status for you because we're gonna and then cut to six days later when everything well, is fine the thing that kind of even touches back on the iliana storm magic miniseries from the 1980s where kurt was one of belasco's pets what iteration of Kurt was a Belasco pet? Yes. Uh, so Ileana and Kurt have a very interesting tumultuous history, I would say, in that she's basically now, uh, for almost forever, have been part demon, yeah. and he is also part demon, so like I feel like they would get along. It was a really interesting turn of character to see her in this state, because I love it, and it was really amazing, and I'm only upset that I didn't get to see more of it. The fact that the staff goes away at the very end kind of gutted me. I'd really, as I'd said in like the last seven episodes, I'd really hope that this staff would become an item of power in this new age of Marvel mysticism for mutancy. There's something about the idea of a staff drawn from the root of the world tree. And okay, I'm going to say it one more time. Everybody's getting mad at Wanda, but why? Why are people getting mad at Wanda? And I mean this. Do people get mad at Galactus when he eats a galaxy? No, no, they think yes. Galactus is awesome, and they love him, and Galactus is so fucking cool, and he gives out the power cosmic, and, like, Wanda plays on a level the other Avengers just don't. Wanda's concerns are so fucking far beyond the mortal plane. When Wanda bothers with us out of the goodness of her eternal magical heart, it's because she chooses to bother with us. But Wanda is so far beyond the scope of a normal hero anymore. She doesn't have the same problems other people do. Captain America has to worry about keeping the spirit of goodness alive. Wanda has to worry about keeping the forces of reality at bay. They are very different Avengers with very different concerns. Okay, if I could comment on this. So one of the things that I kind of have with this issue and, and just some of the Krakoa altogether is... You know, X-Men, Krakoa works because X-Men is such a huge tapestry of hundreds of characters over decades that, you know, everything is there to relaunch a whole world and be able to tell all these different parts because you have so many different familiar characters to work with. But they haven't all been treated equally over the years. Like some of these characters like Cyclops and Wolverine and Emma, like they're so well defined that when a writer grabs them, you know exactly what to do. Like they know how they should sound. And some of these characters have just been so badly mischaracterized and wildly characterized over the years. And Wanda is top, like is near the top of that list. Like I would say like Wanda, um, Polaris, Warren is another one. Even Ilyana, to some extent, 
where different writers just decide that they're going to do something different with them. And, you know, we're definitely getting Hickman's version of these characters. Like, Hickman obviously thinks that Ileana's Pan, you know, which is different from, you know, Guggenheim thinking she was a lesbian and Bendis treating her like she was ace. But, you know, like, I liked the Wanda that we were getting... My favorite version of Wanda that we were getting over the last few years was what we saw in Peter David's all-new X-Factor, kind of going into James Robinson's uh, solo series. And I mean, and that's just a different version than what you see, you know, when Bendis had her in Disassembled or House of M or what, you know, um, we're getting from Hickman here even. I think one of the things that affects indirectly what you're talking about is certain writers have a natural tendency to relate to certain characters in specific ways, not in like a picking on him way, but Bendis specifically likes narratives where his lead male hero is in an ideologically tortured position, but a woman is broken by the extent of her power. Bendis likes to make women very, very powerful and have it break them immediately, and likes to make men struggle through ideological sacrifice. Now, of course, that tends to make the woman the victim and the man the victor, which is kind of the heart of what we're talking about. You know, I think about the fact that you brought up that Warren doesn't have a really great narrative as a character for about 20, 30, 50 years. And there's this perception online that he's a himbo, that he is this like lovable, dumb, beautiful guy. But I don't know that I think he's a himbo. I think he is a, an opportunist who is also a capitalist. I think he looks for the best situation for Warren and kind of exploits it because kind of exactly what you're saying. The only things I can think of that unite Warren are him throwing his money in people's faces, him leaving someone for something better, whether it's a woman, a team, or a job. I don't see a consistent character to Warren that makes me able to like him and at that same time, he actually has gotten a lot of really spotlighty stories. Yeah. And, I mean, okay, so I think Hickman here is making him, you know, Hickman wants him to be, he's going to be the rich and secure guy. But, I mean, he was, I, I don't know. I, I think of him most often as, like, the sexy lamp sugar daddy. Like, you know, he's there to fly around shirtless and, um, you know, have money whenever, you know, they need something big and fancy that can't be explained. Um, but he's also been just, you know, the angry vengeance boy and he's been the opportunistic capitalist and he's been, he's been sad and mopey a lot. Um, and wasn't there even a stretch where he was just kind of like a brainwashed amnesiac, magical flying hippie, magical flying hippie. Yes. Thank you. Um, and actually, so Jonah has a specific term he uses to catch all umbrella Warren's personality. Oh, he's yep. a reverse sugar baby. He takes care of Charles. When Charles is like, we need to fix the mansion, he goes, Warren, can I have some money? And Warren goes, okay, Xavier, as long as you let me flex. And he goes, ka And then he flexes, and Xavier's like, yay, money! That's how I imagine those conversations go. That's, isn't that canon? I'm pretty sure that's canon. Yes, and the thing about it is that covers everything you said. It oh, yes. touches on the fact that he can be kind of vengeful because we're not saying he's a bank account. We're calling him a reverse sugar baby. He 
and one of the things we say that a sugar daddy is because it's a sugar daddy is a negative connotation. Not that there's anything wrong with being a daddy who takes care of somebody, but sugar daddy specifically is somebody who provides you with gifts for sexual favors. And there's, you know, a bit of a negative connotation. And if there is a better connotation and I should be using a different phrase, I would I'll gladly correct myself as far as I was aware. That's the connotation I'm running with. And a reverse sugar baby would then make him spiteful sometimes. Oh, I didn't get my way. I'm leaving with all my money. Like when he quit because Wolverine was on the team. <laughs> There's definitely something about reverse sugar baby that encapsulates all of it. And it's why as personalityless as he is, he's super defined. Well, and I, I want to say just a touch on the term himbo. The best example that I think most everybody would be able to know is Kronk. Oh my god, that's the best example I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) Yes. Kronk, big, beefy muscle guy who's pretty handsome, but is as dumb as a rock. But he's super lovable. He doesn't really have a mean spirit. He's just kind of going along with Yzma. You see him at the end of the film, you know, with the Squirrel Scouts. He's a good person, and that's what defines it. Warren has so much work to become a himbo, you kind of have to go against all of his prior characterization to make him one. And I don't fully agree with making him one. I'd rather Warren either stay where he is, because having that kind of radical change doesn't really happen out of the blue, um, unless there's like a really specific reason for him to have it. I would rather prefer somebody like either create a new character, just to, so you get that himbo factor, if you will. Yeah, he's too smart, you know, because of his... You know, the, like we said, the capitalistic opportunist part, like we saw at the beginning of X, the OG X Factor and stuff. He's too smart to really be a himbo. Like in the X Men world, that would maybe be more Havoc. Like Havoc is the one who's going to have headshots of him playing a saxophone and listening to a saxophone, like uh, Hemsworth and Ghostbusters. We even saw at the beginning of X Men Empire, Warren and Monet were doing capitalistic business ventures together. Like. <laughs> And then he went and got all mopey to Xavier. Like, I don't You're sending me on a mission? So then I kind of want to know, Maddie, I know you have extensive experience with the X-Men through the years, but you've said in a lot of ways that you're representing that newest voice to the discussion. And there's a cultural perception that Archangel is fucking cool. You know what I mean? Like, He's cool that way that Rob Liefeld made a Levi's commercial was cool in 1991, but he's cool. How does that translate through your lens, this Warren and Empire X-Men 1 through 4, this identity that we're discussing? Well, I think despite, as Jonah had mentioned, seeing in Empire X-Men number 1, he and Monet engage in some capitalistic business ventures, I still think he had the most personality when Horticulture put him under their spell in the second issue and just said, shut up, fly me around, sing Mm -hmm. me and Neil Diamond. I think that he is, and I think we've extrapolated about as much as we can out of his personality, and I would have to agree that the reverse sugar baby is the absolute catch-all term for his personality. But beneath that, I've never really looked to mine anything else. He was Archangel for a while, and I was like 12, and I was fucking loving it. Like, that was just for me. Like, Archangel, like like you said, absolute badass. But Angel, meh. I'm happy to see him. Like, good yeah, for you, old timer. Cool, like uh, Jinkos and Pogs. Like, I don't want them now, but I will swear they were the coolest <laughs> thing. Like in 1993. That's actually how I feel about X Men: The Animated Series in general. It was cool then, but I feel like it doesn't update well. The idea of Vengeful Archangel in 2020 is not the same thing as the idea of Vengeful Archangel in 1988. Kyle, I feel like Warren is an X-Man you've 
been I guess connected to a lot because of the amount of Iceman we've covered together. So you've kind of intersected with Warren more than anyone would necessarily want to. I guess you can say that. I mean, I haven't really... Other other than with Champions, I didn't get to read his stuff in X-Factors uh, because of the limited availability on, on uh, Marvel Unlimited at the time. Um... The only other time I I really read anything with him was in uh, um, Wolverine and the X-Men when he was convinced that he was a real angel. Which is kind of the birth of the himbo identity. (laughs) It really is, yes. So I don't really see any growth with him at all uh over what i have actually read with him Uh, but to pivot back to the talk about wanda for me the way i've seen things is that her x-men uh character growth has pretty much been stagnant since she pretty much decided that there were going to be no more mutants so i've been enjoying this uh specifically for the view for us being able to see how much she regrets everything that occurred because of that uh that one decision and all of her attempts to make things better and even though with the help of dr strange she was able to reverse the chaos that she created she's still trying to find ways to make things better to the the mutant population i think it's important to bring up dr strange in the equation here because to mention something that nico had said clearly wanda plays on a much larger playing field than we can understand than any other mutant can understand but in my personal opinion. I think the only person who has transcended their role in the Marvel Universe as normal human slash hero is Doctor Strange. And to frame her kind of condemnation by Doctor Strange. He has a couple of really great lines. You know, this is this is just kind of a thing about you, Wanda. You create chaos and leave it for others to clean up. I think to frame her shaming with Doctor Strange was a strong choice because I think Hickman clearly understands as well that the only other person who really could speak to her or hope to understand what it is that she's trying to accomplish and has failed at accomplishing would be Doctor Strange. And, you know, that's that touches on something really interesting because the last person to as far as i you know last person to really fuck up this big in a lot of ways was dr strange in the whole secret wars era so it kind of is funny coming from him and it pulls together something really interesting even though hickman is a veteran of writing both wanda and dr strange i can't help but realize that what could they possibly do to wanda in an x book that lasts what could they do to an avengers character over in x-men that would last wanda's actions that impacted the x-men are a direct result of an attempt to create a line-wide event and it was a moment that has ripple effects By having Wanda affect the outcome of an X title, you're not really making the X book about Wanda, but the aftermath. To make something major happen to Wanda in an X-Men title would take her agency away and make her a pawn of someone else's book. Yeah, no, I definitely think that Wanda as a pawn makes sense. I, I would hesitate to call her a pawn here, but given the fact that I don't see any necessary repercussion for her actions and the fact that she was the impetus for action at all, yeah. 
okay, I could call her upon this time again. I don't see a book in the near future giving Wanda a sense of growth or a sense of permanence, but I think the crucible issue of X-Men calling so much attention to her in a negative way has at least cemented the way that we'll see her. Oh, I, I think this was I think this was a preamble for uh, a big future Wanda story. I, I wrote it in my notes as, as soon as we got to those last pages where we saw that like she will not be deterred from her good intentions. That like this is her trying to be good and trying to do good, and she it's going to ultimately force her into a position of a major antagonist. I think we're going to get a major event or crossover story with the X Men down the road that they're building her up to be the major antagonist. She is the great pretender. Maybe she'll even try to bring the fallen mutants back through Krakoa. You know, some sort of, well, bigger than makes any sense kind of story. I mean, you know, and I like that you said the word antagonist and not villain, because a lot of people think what the X-Men are doing, the X-Men are doing right now is villainous, but at worst, it's antagonistic of a power structure. And... I could really see Wanda playing an antagonist to that antagonist. I I mean, I love, so as someone from, you know, a, a different kind of minority group, I love the idea around this whole new generation of X-Men that there are no mutant bad guys. That, like, all the mutants are on Team Mutant, and whatever our antagonists or villains or opponents are going to be, it's non-mutants. So anyone, there's no more mutant infighting right now. Which, I mean, those are things that, like, when you're just around people from, you know, your subgroup, you have infighting. You segment yourselves or, you know, but when you're oppressed or against, you know, when it becomes us against them, like, or in a larger world, or then, yeah, like, the fact that there are so many people who hate mutants, like, good mutants and bad mutants are gonna have to support each other for survival. Like, I love that that's what unites and gives us Apocalypse and Sinister and everyone on this team, and there are so many non-mutant antagonists and villains that can be a threat to them, that, you know, we don't need them being on the other side. But to me, then, if Wanda is clearly going to be non-mutant, and this is an us-against-them world, like, she's not not going to be welcome or in any good place on Krakoa in the future. And I kind of think that stages her for a, Krakoa, for a Krakoan coup. Kyle, what are your thoughts on the possibility of the dangers that Wanda could pose to Krakoa? Oh, well, see, I, I mean, she's just so powerful. I, I almost don't want to see her as the bad guy. I, I really want to see her redeemed. I, I want her to, to finally make some headway towards truly repairing her relationship with the Krakoan community. And, I mean, the fact that the Krakoans do call her the Pretender, they do still admit that she, at one point, she was a mutant. And she has been pretty much exiled by them as a result of her acts. So I want to see that as a change. I don't want to see her as an antagonist. 
I think Wanda's evolution as a character right now through through the the lenses of X-Men Empire is really fascinating to see somebody who did something bad and trying to redeem themselves. It brings upon the question, are they worthy of redemption? What does redemption look like for them as well as other people? And are you truly redeemed if nobody still accepts you? It's a really weird and interesting connotation and story arc for a character like Wanda, who is so immensely powerful that, honestly, I think if she really willed it hard enough, she could probably force people to forgive her. I I just want to double check. You're asking if a tree is redeemed in the woods and no one's there to fan shame it? Did it... Okay, I'm just checking. Yes. Well, Ah. you know, Cohen trees. Or... Kotati trees. That's okay. I'll admit, we didn't talk for one second about Empire in this. And like, that's because this had nothing to do with Empire. Nothing. Nothing to fucking do with Empire. It really didn't. And that's kind of fine. I mean, sure, the Kotati landed in Genosha. But honestly, you can remove the Kotati from this fully. You could actually remove maybe like 80% of the contents of this series Because I feel like it really only boils down to Wanda wanting to repent and Stephen Strange telling her how to do that and Beast getting horticulture technology. That's really all that happened. Well, and actually on the topic of that, I would argue that this was meant exclusively to get horticulture out of the frame as quickly as possible as they were introduced so far, so long ago in X-Men number two, that we don't really have room for them with how close we are now to Ten of Swords and how many threads that we have left open in how many books that all feed back into different sects of different villainy. Yeah, it's one of the things that I've been most critical of, of the X-Men title from the Dawn of X. It's so many threads that it makes sense to put horticulture here, but we still really know nothing. We still don't know anything about them. I mean, in terms of Empire connection here, I-, I just think it kind of goes back to the maybe one of the fundamental flaws in the design of Empire, like in my opinion, which is just that some of the things they want to do with this, and by they I mean Ewing and Slot, are nice, but just don't really work. You know, whether this is their decision that, you know, to force X-Men in or, you know, more than likely a you know editorial decision that every book's going to have to, you know, incorporate some way. But, like, the X-Men really don't, they don't have a part in this. So, you know, this was Hickman and Team X just, you know, being like, okay, we're going to have a fun story and we're going to, you know, use this as an opportunity to bring in some of the threads that we wanted to talk about, you know, while we, you know, play nice and tie into your event. But, like, the X-Men don't really have a place in Empire. No, they don't. Except for giving me Ileana with amazing glasses every, and a every beautiful day, coat. Every day, we should be thankful. Throw it up, mm-hmm. up, to the, up to the sunglasses gods. Thank you. Thank you, Ra the sunglasses god. As part of our celebration summer, where we are celebrating X-Fandom all summer long, we've had guests on each week for the last number of episodes, and those guests have picked out prizes for our listeners to win. The first of those prizes... A Dazzler figure featuring Dazzler from her Outback days, picked by Nathan when he was on several weeks ago, has been won by our first guest. And to celebrate, we're doing a fan profile. So everybody, check out Dante, better known as Inferno Magic, on Twitter, along with X's for Podcasts' very own Nathan. Take it away, guys. Hi, everybody. This is Nathan. I'm here with Dante, and he has won the prize. So we are doing a fan profile on him today. How's it going today? (laughs) 
Good. Thank you. Really good. Awesome. So uh, just to get to know you a little bit. So what would be your favorite X-Men? My favorite X-Men is Cyclops. I definitely (laughs) am a staunch Cyclops supporter. I've just, I've been a fan for such a long time of his because he was always, for me, very relatable because he was always someone who followed the rules, you know, tried to be a good person. And then, you know, like his progression over the years, like I think has been very also relatable because he tries to be such a full follower he's kind of been pushed and he's had to evolve i really relate to that with him yeah no i absolutely love the, the growth you've seen especially like you followed it all the way from the 60s on to now he's such a totally different kind of person do you happen to have a favorite cyclops story Probably what I've enjoyed recently was the actually when they when they brought Teen Cyclops uh, into the present, his solo series I thought was phenomenal. Like I thought for the first time, Cyclops was kind of getting what he deserved all along. Like he that to you know have the opportunity to have a relationship with his father and to kind of be a teenager a bit, a space pirate teenager, but still that for me was great. I love that run. Yes. Did you also did you also happen to pick up the champions runs with him in it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, that I mean like that was probably like the next in line for me. Seeing him with the champions like just felt good. It was like he fit in so well. It's like he could become a teenager. Like he could relax. He could be more himself. He learned who he was a little bit more. And I thought that, you know, like getting to see that for a character that I've loved for so long, who really is kind of uptight, you know, like to get that, you know, finally, it was really great. No, absolutely. It really was good to see a lot more of a fun side of him. I definitely agree. Uh, do you have a, a general overall favorite X-Men story, maybe not just featuring Cyclops, or is it all Cyclops feature? I mean, it's not all Cyclops, <laughs> but... Um, uh, you know, I, I'm just a big X-Men fan overall. You know, I am always excited to see where creative teams will take them. I guess a lot of the times I really enjoy when they are in space. Something about that, like, it's just it's so much fun. It always feels, you know, it, it's nice to take them off of Earth where they're, you know, hated and feared you know, into space where it's like, well, everyone wants to kill them still. But I mean, it's not because of who they are. You know, it's it's always something different. So I guess it's nice that they get to be out of their element. So pretty much, yeah, anything space related for me is is always A+. Plus. Ooh, I got I to gotta say, I happen to love this ER. When the brood, too, the brood, yeah. <laughs> is there anything that you would like to share with everybody? Anything that you're doing that's fun? Anything cool going on? I mean, I've just been quarantining. So I finally picked up Marvel Unlimited and... And I have been just catching up on, you know, a bunch of titles that maybe I never had a chance to pick up. So I'm just I'm pretty much just reading everything and anything that I can. Perfect. Yeah, I love I love it when they keep adding some like the new old stories that I've never gotten to on Marvel Unlimited. So where can everybody find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Inferno Magic. That's pretty much the only place I'm not really posting a whole lot. Yeah, no, I hear you. There's, there's stuff going on. And uh, I mean, there's not a lot going on except for, you know, just catching up on stuff. All right, cool. This is Nathan. And I am, was here with Dante today. And thank you, guys. X-Men Empire concluded with a really interesting story that took most of its action out and off panel to give us a slowdown moment between Explody Boy and his zombie talking about the slice of life of what it's like to be a mutant teen that's not dead and has been resurrected. Kinda. It was a really, I want to say weird, and I know I use that adjective a lot, but it felt weird because everything just kind of blipped and, oh, it was done. It didn't really feel like this had much to do with anything of the Empire narrative. This kind of felt like it was just slapped on there 
so they can say the X-Men took a part of it. The Kotati didn't really do anything either. The really main standout, I think, for me out of everything was Ileana. Even Wanda kind of got sideshafted because she was off panel for two and three quarters of issues. It was just a really weird time. I don't think it was bad. I don't think anybody here else thought it was bad. Just kind of, we don't really know where you're going with this. And until next time, Kyle, where can we find you? You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. Maddie, where can everybody find you? You can find me palling around with my zombie self over on Instagram at, at the basely covetous man. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah, where I have a slice of life moment with my zombie version. We talk about my first kid. With, yeah, we talk about my first kiss, not my first kid, with Arachna. Arachna. Uh, Arachna order. Odor, the woman, the mutant who smells like spiders. What kind of mutant power is that? You can find me realizing that I forgot to ask Josh where everybody can find him. So Josh, talk to me, pal. Where can everybody find you? <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at asleep at the wheel, asleep at the w e i l wheel, uh, and also at asleep at the wheel dot com. Same name, asleep at the w e i l dot com, which is your one stop shop for. Anything and Everything X. Back issue, single issue recaps, deep dives into some classic series of X titles. Uh, I have started a new feature with some gallery pages. Easy to load full series galleries with mini spoilerish blurb recaps. I've got some video reviews of trades and other stories. Uh, I've got a nice little collection of t-shirt links for some hot uh, X-Men fan shirts and where you can pick them up a fun little blog and compendium and my way to kind of create content and interact with the uh, x internet you know in a safe from a safe distance and i think a safe distance is the best way to interact with the internet at literally all times dude i've loved having you on and i can't wait to have you on again next episode as always i'm nico action on twitter and instagram that's n-i-c-o-a-c-t-i-o-n you guys can find me all over this amazing network on Too Fast, Too Forever all summer long, HTML Tuesdays, and this show on Mondays and Thursdays. And guys, it goes without saying, but please remember, black lives matter, trans dreams matter, and you need to vote like your weakest friend's life depends on it, because in this coming election cycle, it sure as fuck does. Please always make sure you are getting your news from unbiased sources, and if you're going to lean into a bias, make sure it's keeping people alive. And guys, until we come back next time to talk a little bit more about Explodey Boy, and then, oh right, there were other books this week, we'll see ya. What do spiders smell like? What does that even mean? Swords. <laughs> Maybe it's spider pheromones, so she can. S- oh, like spiders? Jessica Drew. Keep Peter away from her. Do we wanna? Do we wanna call that buys? Because we didn't do. Buy oh right, yeah, everyone has to do their buys. Oh, Bye. Okay. goodbye. Bye. Okay, great. That's gonna be so much fun to fucking edit. Uh- <laughs> 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 okay.